From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll tell you about the Milwaukee Community Land Trust and how it's working to create a path to homeownership for people in the Lindsay Heights neighborhood. Then we'll learn how the Milwaukee Public Library is creating community and encouraging people to use their resources. We're creating community and you know, our mission is that inspiration starts here. We help people relearn and connect and that connection part is hard to do if you're not in person, if you're not coming through those front doors. Plus, we'll tell you about a new passage being created to help fish move upstream in the Milwaukee River. This fish passage is very important uh, to that sturgeon reintroduction program, but it's also very important to just all of the native fish in the Milwaukee River. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. With rents rising across the city, a new approach to combating gentrification and displacement is taking hold in the Lindsay Heights neighborhood on Milwaukee's north side. The Milwaukee Community Land Trust recently put four homes in Lindsay Heights up for sale with the intention that they go to low-income, long-term residents of the neighborhood. Lake Effect Sam Wood sits down with Lamont Davis, executive director of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust, to learn more about how a land trust works and how it allows homeowners to build wealth while also keeping the neighborhood affordable. We're sitting in one of four homes in Lindsay Heights that will be um, sold into the Milwaukee Community Land Trust here in the coming months. And so while a lot of people I think are familiar with terms like affordable housing or maybe even mixed-use development that also try to combat displacement in an area with rising costs and rising rent. I'm not sure as many people are familiar with the term community land trust. So Lamont, as executive director of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust, I want to ask you first off, what is a land trust and and what makes it uh, unique? Great question. Community land trusts are a way for people who've largely been excluded from the opportunity to own a home to get into home ownership. And the way we do that is by entering into a two-party um, home ownership situation. Uh, buyers would own the house and the improvements, and then we would retain title to the land. And so our partners via CDC has produced this great unit of housing, and when we find a buyer, um, they're going to buy the house and the improvement, and then we're going to buy the land. Can you explain a little bit more about how this relationship works between um, the land trust owning the land and the homeowner owning the home that sits on the land? Like, how does how does that work? Really, the situation won't be too much different than traditional home ownership. Buyers who buy into the Milwaukee Community Land Trust would have an opportunity to use the land as they see fit. Um, they, of course, can do the same with the house and the improvements. Uh, the goal is really to create permanent affordability um, in this unit. So it's a pretty much a pay-it-forward model. And so there are some things that they agree to when they become a land trust buyer. One, that they're going to be owner-occupied throughout their term in that house. And then two, they're going to agree to a resale restriction 
that doesn't allow them to get uh, full appreciation of the investment, uh, but they do appreciate a increase of 1.25% annually, which is in line with what traditional real estate kind of appreciates at about 2%. So we wanted to make sure that people could appreciate on this investment, but not outpace or outstrip the market. And that's what we see a lot of times, as particularly over the last couple of years, uh, where homes are selling for way more than what the market, um, what they should be selling in the market. You know, thinking of Lindsay Heights or, or really any uh, other neighborhoods across Milwaukee as well, a big contributor to rising rents is investors coming in and using the property as an investment as opposed to living in the home themselves. And so can you talk a little bit more about why that, that owner-occupant part of the agreement is so important when it comes to keeping a home affordable? Sure. We don't want to see displacement or gentrification in these neighborhoods, but we do know that during the last great recession, our housing recessions in the 2000s, what we saw for every three homes that were sold in the central city, only one came back owner-occupied. And so that's a big problem where we're seeing um, less and less people be owner-occupied in uh, the metropolis. And so with the land trust, we felt it was really important that we maintain that you have to be owner-occupied. And that means you or a family member will always need to own or occupy the unit. So there could be a situation in the future where a buyer maybe their kids get to the age of maturity and they continue to occupy the unit. Um, But you can leave this home to your kids. Um, We're really uh, focused on seeing a neighborhood full of homeowners and not having um, renters. Um, We think that's really important. And particularly in Lindsay Heights, who's seen some level of gentrification, Land Trust really believes that people who normally have always lived in these neighborhoods should get an opportunity to own in these neighborhoods. And so hence, um, a big part of what we do is try to bring the affordability to a price point where we can serve people who make somewhere between uh, $30,000 and $50,000 a year. That's about half of what the area median income is for uh, Milwaukee, Um, but we think this is a great price point. All of our homes, we want buyers who are not spending more than 33% of their income on housing costs. And so getting to kind of the land trust model generally, not just not just in Milwaukee, but, you know, you're not the only ones doing this in the country, in the world, right? There's there's hundreds of examples um, throughout the United States, thousands more throughout the world, um, even some here in Wisconsin, both in urban areas and rural areas. Um, can you talk about uh, the land trust model, not just how it's you know working in Milwaukee with these, you know, starting with these homes, but um in, in general, how kind of it's, it is working worldwide? Yeah, the land trust model is just exploding. Uh, land trusts, uh, uh, specifically community land trusts, um, have been around for about 40 years or so. Uh, these land trust models uh, have really started to explode as we see uh, in affordability and home ownership on the West Coast and the East Coast. Um, they're in 43 different states. Wisconsin does have a few examples of land trusts. Um, Madison has a land trust. La Crosse has a land trust. And then areas like Stevens Point, Adams County, even Wauwatosa are looking at having a land trust model because we have two things um, against us. One, 
uh, property values have risen so sharply over the last year. And that coincides with the fact that interest rates have doubled from just a year ago. And we're really creating a situation right now in the market where affordability is slipping away from so many uh, folks, individuals and families are largely being excluded from the opportunity to own a home. And a lot of that is uh, because of income. And we can't do a lot about income, um, but we can bring the price of home ownership down to an affordable level. And that's what we're doing here by targeting people who make between thirty and $50,000 a year. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you've talked about having to buy homes when prices are rising in order to keep them affordable, right? And that's going to take money. It's going to take funding. Um, what are your primary funding sources as an organization that allows you to do this work? Good question. So we've been well received by the funding community. The city of Milwaukee um, has uh, been a good champion of the land trust model, particularly Alderman Stamper. Um, we've also seen good support from philanthropy, uh, Zilber Family Foundation, Greater Milwaukee Foundation, the Otto Bremer Trust, uh, the Catholic Campaign for Human Development. A lot of uh, philanthropy has stepped up and said, you know what, this is a good model, we believe in it, and we're going to fund you. What's the future look like for MCLT, the Milwaukee Community Land Trust, and how are you all looking to either you know, expand or morph, change, um, just move into the future? One thing about land trusts is that we probably will never be the dominant form of home ownership in a community. Um, we want to be complementary to other forms of home ownership, uh, but we're really looking at folks who um, would largely never be able to afford a home. Um, and we think our future is bright, but we are challenged with a couple things. Uh, one, this is a, a heavy investment on the front end. Uh, community land trusts need um, money to develop a unit, and then we also need money to buy down the affordability of a unit. And so you often see us putting um, upwards of $200,000 to make this unit affordable. Um, but the good thing about it is that that upfront investment creates a permanent affordability in that unit uh, that pays for it for future generations. Um, the challenge is going to be continuing to raise those deep subsidies, uh, but also getting people educated about what a land trust is. Uh, so it's important that we do outreach like what we're doing here at Lake Effect uh, because there are realtors who uh, see our transactions and may say this is not a good deal for their clients. Um, there's home buying counseling agencies who would look at this and say, okay, let me make sure this is the best fit for my clients. Um, but we really just need to continue to fundraise and also educate the community at large about what a land trust is and the benefits of the land trust. Well, Lamont, thank you so much again for joining us on Lake Effect. Uh, truly appreciate your time. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on Lake Effect. This was enjoyable. Lamont Davis is the executive director of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust. He spoke with Lake Effect's Sam Woods. Last week, we told you about the Milwaukee Public Library's viral social media accounts. 
But we also wanted to find out how the library system throughout the city of Milwaukee is doing, especially after the pandemic and a new city budget. WUWM's Mayan Silver sat down with Joan Johnson, director of the Milwaukee Public Library, to find out how things are going and how they hope to get more people using the libraries. Mayan starts by asking Johnson how she got interested in libraries in the first place. I've been working in libraries ever since I was in high school. I was a library monitor at the West Division High School where I graduated from. And um, it was such a great way to get out of being in homeroom every day because I got to go to the library instead and um, do fun things like deliver magazines to classes and then hang out with the other library monitors and spend time with one of my favorite people in the whole world who was the librarian at the time who was our mentor. What's your favorite thing about a library, any library, like the best part about it? I love just being in a place where there's all this possibility because you're in a building that has literally millions of books on hundreds of thousands of topics. Any one of them could be in your hands by the time you leave the building. And there's often multiple programs going on and you can meet people who are enjoying the same program or bump into someone that you know that you haven't seen for a long time. It's just a place where there's so much potential for all kinds of different things to happen. So I just like the air of possibility. I love it. I think one of the big difficulties for libraries all around the country has been trying to get those patrons numbers up and the pandemic really impacted people. Can you kind of elaborate on how the pandemic has affected the Milwaukee Public Library. Yes, um, thank you for asking that. It, it was it was a devastating impact on us because we had to close our doors to the public entirely until every until people understood more about how this virus how the virus was spreading. So, 2020 we don't really even use as a comparison because it was so so unusual to have buildings completely closed and then slowly phasing in the opening of the buildings to partial hours. So when we look back at where we were before the pandemic, we have to look to 2019, and we had 1.6 million people coming through the doors at that time. And then in 2021, when we had all our buildings open again and were um, had ramped back up to the, our full service hours, we only had a half a million people coming through the doors by the end of that year. And then the following year, 2022, we got a little closer to a million, but about three quarters, just over 800,000. And this year, we're doing much better. I feel like we're on track now to hit a million people. And my goal for next year, by the end of the year, is to get to do better than 2019. I've got a stretch goal for everyone to hit two million, to come as close to two million as possible. That's going to be a heavy lift, but it's a great stretch goal for us to work toward. Is the social media going viral and the positive spotlight and the fun openness and creativity, is that a contributor to potentially that two million goal? It could potentially be helpful, but so many of our followers are not even local. But I I think it's definitely going to help increase the things that do help increase the visitor count are really activating our spaces, which we do on a regular basis. Our staff all over the system are doing 
really, I think, compelling and amazing programming for all ages and covering all different types of literacies and subjects and topics on a daily basis. There's something happening that's in person in every building. So those kinds of things are very compelling, I think, for a lot of our users. That will help get people through the door. When we have people coming in to pick up materials, you know, like the collections never really were reduced. So we have amazing materials on all subjects for researchers and recreational readers who want to come in to pick up their materials. Some people just come in, pick up their holes, and leave. But that that counts. And then we also have a lot of people using our computers and coming in for internet access. We have quite a bit of activity in some of our branches for people who need to use the Wi-Fi. And um, it's interesting because depending on where you are in the city, the amount of usage that 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 you see for Wi-Fi is different. So all the different communities have a slight different um, set of needs. So we have a lot of people coming in and using the Wi-Fi, so that helps get people through the door. Not everybody knows we have all of these resources, so we have been doing a lot, making a lot of effort to get the word out about all of the resources and services that are happening on a regular basis, and that will help too. So things like this interview that we're doing right now will help us get people through the door. We did a very robust community engagement campaign this year, January through June, including community conversations with the city librarian and a community engagement survey online and in paper copies in person at the branches. And also we did outreach to reach people for the survey as well. So just the process of getting that feedback from people helped people learn a lot more about the library. So we had over 5,000 people respond to that. And some of those people were non-users because we did we did outreach as well. And they learned about the library, and I'm sure we converted some of those people into library users. Nice. Um, so if you're, if you're measuring success, like why is patrons in the door so important for a library, you know, and for the library system? And are there other measures of success, or is that like the gold standard? It's, it's such a great return on investment because we invest a lot in these buildings. And if we, if we don't you know, need or want to interact with people in person, then why invest in new facilities? You know, we, the facilities really support the programs and services that we're putting, you know, that we're delivering. There's a lot more dynamism when you're working with people in person than when you're seeing them virtually. And we have a lot of resources that are available online that don't even involve another person that people can access. A lot of, you know, databases and downloadable content and that's important too, and we do count that as well. Um, but the but the in-person experience is is really the heart of what we do. Customer service, you know, that one-on-one, the ability to just have that resonance. And then when you have a one-to-many program, you have the opportunity to create community in our spaces. The best example of that is the community kitchen at the Mitchell Street branch in the makerspaces where we bring people together for programs around food and nutrition. And the real, I think, attraction is that at the end of the program, there's always food on the table. And so uh, we'll have a dinner or a brunch and the community is sharing that together. They create something together and they share, they share the experience of creating it and learning. And then they share the experience of enjoying that meal together. 
And some of these programs, people are coming on a regular basis. So we learned during the community conversations that there is a program at the Capitol Branch called Chair Yoga, and there's an instructor who's been doing this program for a few years. She has a following, and it's on a regular basis, uh, at least once every month, and the same people are coming month after month, and they've been, they have made, some of them have made friends with each other. And so, so again, we're creating community. And, you know, as part of, you know, our mission is that inspiration starts here. We help people read, learn, and connect. And that connection part is hard to do if you're not in person, if you're not coming through those front doors. You know, in terms of the, the uphill battle that libraries are facing, I mean, we just had the budget situation and a pension crisis that Milwaukee's impending budget is something that a lot of libraries, and I'm sure the Milwaukee Public Library has been vocal about. How has budget been something that, has it been something that's gotten harder over the past few years? I mean, for many years, it's been challenging. And now with the passage of the legislation that is um, enabling us to enact a 2% sales tax, that takes a lot of pressure off of the library's budget. So that really is a relief to us. And um, we really appreciate all of those who made it possible for this to happen and it really will help us continue to provide the critical services that our community needs. It's really difficult to have to be talking about the future that involves cuts, and I don't have to do that for next year. So it's greatly appreciated, everyone who expressed support for that legislation. Joan, thank you so much for talking to me about this. You are so welcome. I really appreciate your interest in Milwaukee Public Library. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Joan Johnson is the director of the Milwaukee Public Library. She spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. You can hear their conversation about the library's viral social media accounts at wuwm.com. And a note to our listeners, the Milwaukee Public Library is a financial contributor to WUWM. Did you know the first black female cantor was born right here in Milwaukee? We'll tell you all about her in 15 minutes. But first, we'll tell you about a new fish passage being built to help improve the ecosystem in the Milwaukee River. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The Wisconsin DNR and other groups want to make it easier for fish trying to travel upstream in the Milwaukee River during spawning season. That's why crews have been moving earth and water along Kletch Dam in Glendale this summer, creating a fish passage. WUWM environmental reporter Susan Benz visited the dam and spoke to a couple people coordinating the project in order to learn why the fish passage and other upcoming projects matter for the health of the Milwaukee River. Stacy Ron is with the Wisconsin DNR, and Beth Wenzel is with the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District. 
You'll first hear from Wenzel, and then you'll hear the sound of water flowing over the dam throughout the conversation. In order to make a very stable channel, you know, the first step will be to dig down and create, you know, basically a route for the water to go, but then a lot of large rock will be placed in the bottom of that channel and it, along the sides. And then at the top, there will be a lot of, you know, native plants. So there will be a lot of roots that are stabilizing the upper part. But the idea is that that rock is um, sized so that it will not move when there's water rushing through there. So that will make sure that the river does not cut down and end up just completely going around the dam at all times. So you've got the dam damming and you've got the fish passage doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, so the point, the, the way it will work is there will be water flowing over the dam as, as always, and but a portion of the river's flow will go through that channel. You know, we don't, what we don't want is for the entire river to cut over there. And so that's, that was part of the design process and determining, okay, how much, how much force is the water going to put on these rocks to make, and, and how do we size the rocks so that they're not going to move and we end up with a, a big mess over there. Yeah. And then, you know, some people ask, well, how are the fish going to find it? You know, like, are, are they going to be able to find their way in, along this little channel? And the fact is, yes, when they are ready to move up river, they're really driven to go upstream. And kind of the way you can feel which way the wind is blowing on your face, they can figure out which way the water's coming at them from. And so they'll, they'll feel some of the water coming straight you know, over the dam, but then they're gonna look around for a passage and realize there's water coming through there as well. And they'll find that and on they'll go. Through this process, was land acquired by MMSD or were easements set up? Were there homes that were removed in, in this process? No homes were removed as part of this project. Uh, there is a separate effort underway through the city of Glendale to acquire some of these properties that are within the floodplain. So a lot of those houses over there are at risk of flooding when the river comes up very high. And so there is a separate effort underway to uh, make sure that we have as few people living in the floodplain as possible. So there was previously a house over there that was removed as part of that program. Mm -hmm. So what that did is it created space to work with over there. Now there was still some complicated real estate discussions and easements to be acquired, but right now over in the area where we're working, the land is owned by a combination of Milwaukee County Parks, MMSD, and the city of Glendale. So this has been a long, long road to reach this point. I mean, people have been concerned about the, the aquatic like fish being able to, you know, move it up and down the river, that this spot is really critical to that passage and to the health of the of the basin at large, I mean, especially these stretches, but it's not easily done. We're, we're standing under beautiful old trees, and that was one of the concerns early on for some people who spend time here. Had the passage been on this side of the river, this would look very different. So can you talk a bit about the evolution and what then led to, okay, MMSD worked with Milwaukee County to really push this forward? Sure, I can talk a little bit about the evolution. Um, we did go through a lot of process to develop different alternatives, take those to the public. 
get feedback. There's a lot of complicating factors from like a technical standpoint, okay. working next to the dam, still keeping the dam, making sure you still have the flow over the dam, allowing passageway that will have really big fish like lake sturgeon be able to pass through and small fish like northern pike be able to pass through. So there's a lot of technical things to work through in those. And then also, yeah, working through like what the community wants to see here. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of folks that were very passionate about aspects of the park or aspects of the river. And so, yeah, we just had to work through all of those things. And MMSD has been a partner from a technical perspective and also had the ability to assist Milwaukee County Parks with um, the construction, which was wonderful so that it could be, it could be done um, in the time frame that it's getting done. So what is the time frame? The hope is fish will be frolicking back and forth by when? We anticipate completing this project uh, later this fall. Uh, at this point, by the end of November is our target. No, the only thing I, I would add to what Stacy was saying regarding some of the history of the project, I mean, people love this river and they love this park. And it's understandable, you know, whenever you start talking about changes to a place that people love, people are going to have concerns and be nervous about what it might look like at the end. And so it takes time to discuss those objectives, those, those concerns, and figure out ways to work together to make sure that we meet the objectives of the project while you know protecting the interests of people that use this park. And so in the end, we're all just happy that we found a solution that works for fish and works for the residents of Glendale. So when it is complete, um, Beth, will there be will there be plantings? Will like stormwater retention be part of beyond that passage? There will definitely be plantings. Uh, they will be native plants that are, are good at capturing and encouraging water to infiltrate into the ground. There's no other specific stormwater management, you know, there aren't any rain gardens or basins or anything like that, in part just because the, the space is limited. We don't have any plans to make any changes to this side of the river as part of our project. So describe a little bit more about the importance of this, creating this passage. Sure. So um, as we talked about, there are people that are very passionate about the river and one of those uh, passions is definitely fish. Um, and at uh, Wisconsin DNR for many years we've been working with a lot of partners to try to reestablish sturgeon in the river and there's a lot of work that's been done over one line decades to make that uh, possibility and so this fish passage is very important uh, to that sturgeon reintroduction program but it's also very important to just all of the native fish in the Milwaukee River we have very little habitat that fish can use to spawn or have for nursery habitat in the lower portions of the river and this will open up so much area for those fish to be able to get around the dam and into the rest of the river and provide a lot of connectivity for the fish to use the entire stretch of the river all the way up to Grafton. You know this effort to uh, restore fish passage and reconnect the Milwaukee River to Lake Michigan has been ongoing for years. There's been a lot of dam removals, there's been some other fish passage projects. 
Uh, Fletch is the largest barrier currently between Lake Michigan and the Bridge Street Dam in Grafton. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are two other locations that we're concerned about. Uh, one is Esterbrook Falls. Esterbrook Dam was removed, but the location that we're talking about now is Esterbrook Falls, okay. which is right near the Beer Garden. So Esterbrook Falls is not a natural waterfall, but rather it's a relic of historic bedrock mining in the river. So they mined bedrock out of the river, and then that's where they stopped is where you see that draw. Okay. Historically, fish could get past there no problem, but now with that left there, it's, it is a problem. And so that's what we're going to be working on a solution to. So that's something that partners have been looking at for a while. It's just that you're, reach, you're reaching the point that you can now try to take that on. Yes. Yeah. There's one other location that we are uh, looking closely at right now. The reach between the former North Avenue Dam and North Avenue. Yeah. So if you're familiar with that reach, you know that it's it's very straight, mm -hmm. it's very steep, it's very fast, mm -hmm. and it's lined with these like concrete blocks. Mm -hmm. When the former North Avenue Dam was removed, the river was not restored to its natural elevation because there's a water line that goes under the river at North Avenue and it's a little bit too high. They left it artificially kind of steep sloped. A lot of fish can make it through there during a lot of low conditions, but some of the more sensitive fish like northern pike um, certainly struggle. And it also becomes worse when Lake Michigan is lower because when the lake is high, a lot of that reach is, gets backwatered. So the lake is high enough that it's not a very long stretch. But when the lake drops, it's a long way to go. And you can think of it like, you know, how fast can you run a 50 yard dash versus how long can you run for a how fast can you run for a half mile you know and so it's the same for fish if it's a 50 yard dash and they have to go really fast they can make it but if it's that whole long stretch it, they you know they get too tired out we don't have a great sense of exactly how big of a problem it is so we're still analyzing that but we anticipate needing to do some modifications to that reach in order to improve that as well. But that will be probably a few years out yet. What a job. Yes. Did you know this when you came and took this job? Uh, well, I did, <laughs> but that's because I'm a fish nerd. <laughs> so, but yeah. I mean, it's so exciting to think about fish getting from, you know, Lake Michigan all the way up to Grafton. And of course they used to go even further, but you know, like this will be great you know there's some great habitats that we're able to reconnect great areas where some of these fish need to go to spawn so a lot of these large fish that spend their adult lives in in big deep waters like the lake or the lower river they have to go up you know into these faster flowing areas to spawn or into wetlands to spawn and then their little baby fish stay in those kind of smaller waters where they're safe until they grow and are big enough to survive in the deeper waters. So it's just sort of reestablishing that life cycle um, to ultimately have more big fish in the river and everybody likes that. Beth Wenzel is a senior project manager with the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District. Stacy Ron is Lake Michigan program coordinator with the Wisconsin DNR. 
They spoke with WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz at the Clutch Dam in Glendale. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. We'll take one more break and then we'll learn about the first black woman cantor who was born here in Milwaukee. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Milwaukee lays claim to the first black woman cantor, who grew up here in the early 1900s. Madame Goldie Steiner wasn't a cantor in an Ashkenazi or European Jewish synagogue. Those roles were not open to women until the 1970s and 80s. But she may have led prayers in black Jewish communities and was a part of the golden age of Jewish liturgical music, singing it throughout Wisconsin, the Midwest, and the country as a part of the Yiddish theater scene, on Broadway and on the radio. WUWM's Mayan Silver speaks with a Milwaukee-born educator, artist, and advocate Shahana McKinney-Balden to learn more about her life. So Madame Goldie Steiner was born in 1889 as Gladys May Sellers and raised in Milwaukee. Can you tell us about her life? Yes. She sang from a very young age and she was a gifted vocalist. As a young person, she um, went to school in Milwaukee Public Schools, where she undoubtedly became fluent in German, because all kids were getting at least some instruction in German in Milwaukee Public Schools at that time. As a young adult, she was an usher at the Pabst Theater. And then she uh, was active in her church, which was St. Mark AME Church, the same St. Mark AME Church, which is still active in Milwaukee today. They're on Atkinson, and about 16th and Atkinson. And she was very active in the um, musical life of the church. The church was a very important center of African-American life at this time. And, you know, before the Great Migration, there were very few African-Americans in Milwaukee. In her early life, um, there were probably a thousand black people in Milwaukee. Uh, but anyway, she, she grew up, she got married to Albert Smack, who was a singer and who also um, uh, ended up uh, working at the uh, Milwaukee Journal. He was a, a metal man there. And they both were involved in the musical life of the church. And Gladys sang in the church and also in the community. And she sang in the community in Milwaukee and in the surrounding region in Madison, in Chicago, 
in Minnesota. Uh, and she sang at some very important African-American community events, a send-off for African-American soldiers headed off to World War I, the opening of a Black-owned business in Madison that was an all-day affair with a full baseball game and looking at stereoscope images of uh, Black progress and solos by Gladys. She was part of the Wisconsin delegation that represented the state at the Jubilee 50-year celebration after emancipation. It was a little bit more than 50 years after. I think it took a while to get this event together. Um, but this was in Chicago, and she was a part of it. The black press followed her career. The um, Wisconsin Weekly Blade, an important black paper that was published in Madison and then in Milwaukee later. And the Chicago Defender, which had a correspondent who was based in Milwaukee. They followed her career. So we know quite a bit about her singing career in Milwaukee. And then around 1922, she gives it all up and she leaves and she goes to New York. And in New York, she becomes Madame Goldie Steiner and she starts to sing Jewish liturgical music. This was the golden age of chazanus, which is the term for Jewish liturgical music led by a prayer leader called a chazan. There were women who were doing this. They were called chazantas, which actually meant the wife of a chazan, but it's a term that these woman singers took on as they were a part also of this golden age of chazanus where Jewish liturgical music was sung in concert halls, on the radio, and on records. It was wildly popular in the Jewish community and also beyond. There was a handful of African-American chazanim who were a part of this golden age of chazanus and Madame Goldie Steiner was the only African-American woman, to our knowledge, who was a part of this artistic movement. That's amazing. Um, do you know anything about her transition into Jewish liturgical music? Like, what inspired her to, to start singing that? Was it just geography, being in New York, and being around that? Or do you have any idea? Well, we have some, we have some ideas. First of all, she already sang in many languages before she became a part of this golden age of Chazanus movement. And Milwaukee at this time was a time of a lot of exciting black thought and modern African-American advancements in philosophy and religion. As a matter of fact, Milwaukee plays an important role in many of the stories of indigenous African-American religion, African-American homegrown religious movements like the Nation of Islam. Milwaukee is the place where Elijah Muhammad 
came and hid out for several years when he had to move away from where he was at in, in the early years of his career. And Milwaukee was also a place where African-American Judaism has a lot of historic connections. I imagine that Madame Goldie Steiner had a lot of connections to Jewishness and Jewish traditions from a few different angles. That included, yes, moving to New York, actually to the Lower East Side, and becoming a part of the Yiddish theater scene there. And as she became a part of the Yiddish theater scene, she was facing the same kind of racism and social restrictions that black male cantors experienced, but she had an extra layer being a woman in that environment. Can you, can you talk about what it means to be a woman who chose to sing chazonis, which are synagogue chants, basically? Madame Goldie Steiner is a, one of a cohort of woman chazantas who are a part of this golden age of chazonis. And Dr. Jeremiah Lockwood is doing really exciting research to retell the story of the Chazantas. These women were not singing in synagogues, partly due to traditional religious restrictions against men listening to women singing for modesty reasons. But actually, again, this is part of the golden age of Chazanis where men were also singing this music in concert halls, on the radio, on records. But for Madame Goldie Steiner, if she was engaged with what we call today Hebrew Israelite or indigenous African-American Judaisms, communities, those communities actually had a lot of woman leadership. They had women in positions of authority who were leading prayer and other elements of community life for those communities. And so, for example, if she went to New York and became a part of the commandment keepers or another of the more well-known black Jewish communities there, it's conceivable that she was in leadership positions and maybe even leading prayers in those communities. Uh, but certainly in Ashkenazi Jewish synagogues, the woman leadership of prayers for the full congregation doesn't come until much later, with a very few exceptions. So Madame Goldie is part of, of many lineages and legacies. And yes, the Kolisha prohibition uh, against the, the voice of a woman is a part of the story, but it's only a part. So she spent a few decades in New York and that she performed elsewhere around the country. When did she come back to Milwaukee and, and what was the end of her life like? I want to give a shout out to my friend and teacher, Henry Sapoznik, who 
did the groundbreaking research, which is the only reason any of us are talking about Madame Goldie Steiner and her trailblazing career uh, today, along with the other um, African-American chazanim from the golden age of chazanis. I learned about Madame Goldie Steiner from Henry's research, and I was listening to a talk that he had given on Zoom one day, and he was talking about how he, uh, the last known performance of hers was this amazing showcase that was a fundraiser for the Brooklyn Urban League, where she performed on a bill with all these amazing famous people, including Duke Ellington. And then he says, we lose track of her after 1941. And I'm listening, thinking, I bet she went home to Milwaukee. That's what I would do. And I just kind of started poking around and doing my own internet research and going on Ancestry.com, frankly, as well as paying close attention to kind of what other armchair folks were doing, different comments on different Twitter threads where folks had posted about Henry's research. And um, I found her. I found her family. I found her story about the end of her life. I found her unmarked grave in Milwaukee, which is near Alverno College. And yes, she came home to Milwaukee sometime in the 40s, where she lived with her husband, her second husband, Richard Armstead, and um, his daughter. And then Richard died in 1953. And she lived in Milwaukee until 1960, where she, when she died in Wauwatosa. And they're both buried at Mount Olivet Cemetery, um, which is like 35th and Morgan. So I'm just thrilled. And I've been thinking about this as rematriating her story to Milwaukee and to the history and histories of Milwaukee. I mean, there is this part of the story, which is I'm also a black woman from Milwaukee who sings Jewish liturgical music. And um, I've really uh, appreciated the opportunities that getting connected to Madame Goldie Steiner have afforded me and, and other people in our communities to connect and collaborate. So really looking forward to lots more of that. Well, it's really a noble effort to share her story and to publicize and to let people know her, her great impact and talents. Thank you so much, Shahana McKinney-Balden, for speaking with us about Madame Goldie Steiner. Thank you, Mayan. Shahana McKinney-Balden is an educator, artist, advocate, and thought leader on racial and ethnic diversity in the Jewish community. She spoke to WUWM's Mayan Silver earlier this year. And that's Like Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Like Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. 
Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore an alternate universe where the Great Lakes have flooded and experiments on invasive species have gone wrong. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.